And I begin by telling you a story that happened last year in February 2017. Uh, a young man named Nick Lutz, he is a student at the University of Central Florida, who were the unofficial national champions last year, or so they claimed, right? Uh, and uh, they were, he, was, he was going through the typical college relationship drama. I don't know if y'all ever had that when you were in college. Maybe you did, didn't. But he had that, you know, uh, that, that girl that he dated that they broke up and it was just a really tough situation. And, and they just, he just knew they weren't going in the right direction, so, he, so they broke up. And a few weeks after they broke up, he, he received a, a letter which is very, very odd these days. I mean, especially if you're under 30, you know, uh, handwritten letters are, are not. I mean, we type an email, send a text message, Facebook message, and he received a four-page handwritten letter from his ex-girlfriend. Very sweet gesture. It was, she was owning up to mistakes that she had made in their relationship. It was I don't know. I don't know how you would receive something like that. I, I would probably be very, you know, very floored. That's typically not the way uh, that people respond to breakups. And uh, old Nick didn't respond that well either, because instead of reading it, pondering over it, looking at it as what it was, Nick decided to correct it, and he. He made, uh, in, in bold red pen, he made uh, indentation error, uh, error critiques. He, he critiqued spelling. Uh, he even critiqued content, told her that uh, her hypothesis was strong, but she gave no supporting evidence. <laughs> and he sent it back to her with a grade of 61 over 100, or a D minus, as he wrote very boldly on there. Uh, and at the bottom, a long paragraph about how he just wasn't convinced. And I'm thinking, Wow, talk about not wanting restoration, right? I mean, it's just pretty safe to say at that point, uh, there's not even a friendship, you know? Maybe that's why she wrote it. I'm not trying to get back together with you. I just, we're just trying to be civil here. But no, Nick did not want that. And sadly, sadly, as he posted the corrected note on Twitter and pictures of it, uh, he got over 330,000 likes for his photos of the corrections. It was covered by local news in Florida. It was, it was, it was kind of crazy. But uh, thankfully, thankfully, uh, Paul, as he wrote 1 Corinthians, uh, he, his whole goal was restoration. Uh, he, he had an understanding of what this process should look like. It didn't involve giving the Corinthians a letter grade, even though at some points I mean, he might have been tempted to if that thing had existed then. He might have been tempted to give them a pass or fail. They most certainly would have failed, it seems, right, uh, based on some of the things that were going on uh, in there. But what we saw this morning is that Paul wanted them to look at life through the lens of the gospel. That was the most important thing for Paul, was that they would not just continue along in their error. And I, I wonder for us if when we're counseling or when we're just even talking in our friendships, if we're pressing people in love, right? We don't want to be that loud gong or clanging cymbal, but pressing people in love to look at their lives through the lens of the gospel. If we're doing that ourselves, and um, and I, I, I want to just reinforce from this morning, what does that mean to look at our lives through the lens of the gospel? And so let's just refresh ourselves on what it means to apply the gospel to our lives. And it all goes back to, because we've been learning by repetition here, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. 
right? Even the gospel, you think about it in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. What did God create us for? He created us for intimate fellowship with him. But what, what kind of impact did sin and the fall have on our lives? It separated us from his purposes. And ingrained in us is this propensity to rebel against the things that we know that are right, to define life for ourselves. And so you've got creation, fall, and then you have redemption. What did God do? He moved towards us in, his, in, in our brokenness and in his love for us and provided for us to come back to him. And he put his spirit inside of us so that we could become agents of restoration. He restores us to that original purpose that he asked for us. That's the gospel. It's not just Christ died for our sins and was raised. It's a kind of a simple way that we remember the, the core components of the gospel that Paul showed us this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. But it's also what we, what we recognize as the entire storyline of the Bible. That is the good news. God created us for his presence. Sin separated us from his presence. Christ came to, to, to redeem us and so that we could be restored back into his presence. So how do we apply that to life? Let's, let's just take a, um, an issue uh, like, like marriage, for instance. I mean, that's probably would be one of those things that we would all uh, kind of look to. How do we apply the gospel to our marriage? Particularly if, if Mandy and I are struggling with a particular issue, uh, how, how, do I, how do I apply the gospel to our relationship? Well, um, uh, I'll use a contemporary situation because this will be a fun exercise. So I don't know, man, if you experience things like this, but my wife is right very often. And I'm not ashamed to admit that. I'm not going to say she's right 100% of the time, but most of the time, okay? Most of the time. Uh, and um, and that's, not, that's not lifting her high on a pedestal. I, she's a very wise and discerning woman. So, But when we come to a point to where we uh, maybe she is right about a certain issue and I don't want to agree with it, right? I go back to God's original intent in putting us together. Ryan, she's your helpmate. Where do I get that from? Genesis. You're meant to be one. Where do I get that from? Creation. God's creative intent in designing man and woman in marriage. And then I recognize my tendency to rebel even against the good things that God's given me and the wisdom that God's given me. But what has Jesus done? Jesus has transformed me from the inside out to where I can humble myself and recognize that my pride will get me nowhere. It will get me no life. It will get me, it will get me no peace. It will get me no joy. But instead, only by embracing Jesus and walking in the way of humility will I find life and peace and joy. And in restoration, I can come and I can say, you know what? You're right. I think this is the right way to go or the right thing to do. And like I said, it doesn't happen often, but I do see that playing itself out in my life. I'm not, not, not too proud to admit that that's a, that's a common situation that we face. What about, what about in terms of friendships? What about in terms of friendships? <clears throat> Sometimes we can tend to, uh, to, to come to points of disagreement in friendships, right? Uh, maybe there's a, there's a tendency where we can come to a point in a friendship uh, where there's disagreement, but just out of a desire, and this is another thing that I struggle with, just out of a desire to keep the status quo. I don't want to upset things, so I, what am I going to do? I'm, I, I'm, I'm, my tendency, my, my propensity is just to overlook it. I'm just going to ignore that. Okay? But what, what's God's creative in, intent for friendships? We saw it with Cain and Abel, even though they were siblings, that God designed them to be friends. Am I, am I my brother's keeper? Well, that's, 
Yeah, you are <laughs> in one sense. You should be your brother's keeper. Uh, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. As, as, as iron sharpens iron, so one, one man sharpens another. We saw that in Jonathan and David, that friendship that was there through thick and thin, through confrontation and, 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 and error. We, we saw, we've seen friendships put in the right context all throughout the Bible as God puts forth that design in friendships. But we recognize that our natural tendency is to define friendships on our own terms. And to just do life as we see fit. But that, there's no life there. There's a way that seems right to a man and then it, it leads to destruction. There's, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. We're very uncomfortable with that these days. But what does Jesus do? Jesus transforms us to recognize that there is such a thing in the context of friendship as, both, as living with both grace and truth just like Jesus did. Jesus came to model that for us and Jesus loved people radically and yet he confronted people boldly and it was not without love. He was perfect in that love and confrontation. And so we recognize that as agents of restoration, just like Paul's done for us, is that sometimes friendship mandates that we, get, that we make ourselves uncomfortable and we go ahead and confront. We go ahead and address. We go ahead and step forward in that confrontation. There, there, there literally, we could, we could literally go through the whole gamut of the Christian experience, whether we're talking about cultural issues like abortion, which I, I love the fact that the other, the, the other Wednesday night, Darden actually mentioned that or taught on that in Awana. And we had, we had kids responding positively because Darden kind of exposed them to that in a biblical way and understanding God's creation mandate and understanding it in the context of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration of seeing, seeing abortion in the light of the gospel. We can do that. Or we can do it in, in other relational areas like forgiveness. But the important thing is, is that we follow this paradigm. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, how God designed it. Fall, recognizing my tendency to rebel against God's design and to bring brokenness into any and every situation. Redemption that Jesus transforms us from the inside out and gives us the right attitude to start with, which is always faith. It's always trust. It's never pride. It's never self-righteousness. It's never any of the, it's it's always faith and trust and surrender. And then in restoration, in determining to flesh out what we've heard from it, from him in that area. And setting our eyes, setting our face like flint and going in the right direction and saying, God, I know that I may I don't have the strength to do this, but you will give me the strength. And that's what it looks like to apply the gospel to our lives. And this is how the kingdom advances is one life at, to another life, to another life, to another life. And restoration is accomplished as families and organizations and schools and, and workplaces are surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's when we talk about the importance of the church and its impact. We measure the impact of a church in the lives of its people. The number of people that we're reaching, the growth of people within our fellowship, and that growth process is just like life. Sometimes it hurts, but the growth process weaves together pain and joy and rest and restoration. And so in light of Paul's writing and visits, repentance and growth had taken place in the Corinthian church. So he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians to galvanize their restored relationship and in pouring himself out to them some of the most encouraging words that Paul would ever write or recorded for us to think about here tonight. So let's look, let's start with Paul's focus here. Paul's focus. In 1 Corinthians, the focus was on how the cross changes the way we see the world. That we value some things, but God's values are probably totally different. 
That his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And the cross helps us to see that with absolute clarity. The cross is that corrective lens. And so in the cross, we see the justice of God, his truth and his, or his value for truth and holiness. And the gospel will never tell you to call wrong things right. You need to understand that. The gospel will never call you, tell you to, to call wrong things right. In the cross, you don't see God overlook or, or just simply um, turn his eyes away from evil. God dealt fully and finally with evil on the cross. In the cross, God deals with the worst of who we are. But in the cross, we also see that God values humility and weakness. Jesus' example of submission to his will and his father when it ultimately involved his, his suffering and death. We recognize that that is the pathway of resurrection life flowing through us. Even when things are uncomfortable, even when it means making ourselves vulnerable or putting ourselves in a, a, a humble position, a position where we're being spent. We recognize that that's the pathway of life flowing to us from God as we're doing it for his glory. And so as the spirit of God ministers to us in our faith and repentance, he empowers us to take up this cruciform way of life and make it our own. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7, through 7, how the tone from the very beginning is different with Paul. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 1-3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort by which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see the key word there, comfort, right? For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in, in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Comfort, 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 comfort. <laughs> Paul, Paul just wants us to get it. He wants us to, to he wants the, the weight of his repetitiveness to land on us because he wants you to see that as God comforts you, you're meant to become an agent of comfort. As God redeems you, you're meant to become a, 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 a messenger of redemption. As God restores you, you're meant to become an agent of restoration. It's not just meant to reside in you. And this is one of those necessary fleshing out, uh, one of the ways we flesh out love. We're not self-centered. We're continually pouring ourselves out and investing in others because that is what we've seen in Jesus. We are not comforted just for ourselves, but for others. And what Paul will communicate in this letter is geared towards comfort. In fact, the first seven chapters are devoted to Paul's reconciliation with the Corinthians. And so let's look at what he says throughout these first seven chapters. First of all, in, in chapters one and two, Paul, or chapters one through three, Paul kind of justifies or gives us his justification for his ministry. He had changed plans uh, a few times, and so he wants them wants to uh, kind of take away any kind of um, accusation that can be made against him. Because once again, there's these people on the other side who are in the, the local fellowship there of believers in Corinth who are saying that Paul's not coming or, or if he's coming back, he's just going to be mean to us like he was last time. And in fact, in the, if you want to see kind of Paul's thought, look at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So basically, here's how it all went down. Paul heard about what, what was going on, then Paul sent the letter. It wasn't received the way that he wanted it to be, so he followed the letter up with a visit. And he comes in, and it's a painful visit. Paul didn't want to be a loud gong or a clanging cymbal, but he recognized that grace and truth had to go hand in hand, that he had to come and lay down the law, so to speak. He had to come and tell them 
uh, all of these ways that they were going wrong. He had to call out the false teachers. He had to he had to help them understand the ways that they were going astray. And so Paul actually um, tells them he didn't he didn't want to make another painful visit for him. And so he he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he wrote to them again. Look at verse four. He says, "For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart." Of heart and many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. It's it's usually considered that we don't have that letter. So you got First Corinthians, which is the corrective letter, and then you have another letter, which is another kind of letter spurring them on to repent. And then finally, when they repent, then he sends this letter as a a letter to reconcile uh, them to him. And so. Paul goes and he tells them in Second uh, Corinthians two that these the the world's values by which these these false teachers are using to point fingers at him that that's not God's desire or will. And so it, it would be kind of like somebody coming up to you on the sidewalk in town during the week and saying, you know. I really think y'all would be better served at First Baptist Church if you had a pastor who was like six feet tall, you know, maybe 175, skinny, skinny, you need a skinny pastor. He needs to have a nice haircut instead of just that short hair look. And, and listen, you would really do well if he would, if he would wear these clothes. Wear this cologne, you know. I hear the pastor of the Church of the Highlands wears this kind of cologne. He 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 really needs to. He needs to smell better, you know. I mean, we laugh at these things, but that's honestly the level of that. Like they were saying, that, that guy Paul, he's short, he's bald, kind of has a little squeaky tone when he talks. He's got to be led around. He's he doesn't. He's his clothes are tattered. I mean, he's got wrinkles. I mean, goodness, wrinkles. You know, they're, they're, they're leveling all these accusations that reveal that their heart is not in things for things of the Lord. It's, it's in things of the world. And Paul says, listen, the world's standards are not our standards. And he goes all throughout these first few chapters telling them about that they need to make sure that they have the, the standards of God in mind. And he says, these, world, these, these, these are the world's values, not God's. And so how do you know a faithful leader? Because they speak of Christ in truth and sincerity, and they lead people to life in him. And then he, look at this uh, in chapter 3. Look at the very beginning. He says, are we, getting, we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? They were saying, what kind of degrees does Paul have on his wall? What seminary did he graduate from? Do you, do, I mean, you know, these are, I'm, I'm making these modernized, but, but they were saying, you know, we, the people were coming to them and saying, well, we've got so-and-so who recommends us. And I mean, we all respect that guy. He's written all, all the good books. He, he's, he's put his stamp of approval on my ministry. But Paul, Paul doesn't have any of those things. Later on, Paul is going to actually mock them. We, we kind of think that, that, Sarcasm and, and some of those rhetorical devices are, are, not, are not necessary. Paul shows that there might be a place for those because he's like, oh, you've got those super apostles among you. You know, that's what he calls them later on. He's like, hey, you've got those super, those, those super men among you. you. You really don't need me. 
And he's saying that's this is not the this is not God's values. These are the world's values. But we recognize that our triumph is in Christ alone. We don't need letters of recommendation because you are my letter of recommendation. If you want to see the kind of uh, of teaching that a leader is is teaching, if you want to see the kind of of leadership that a, that a leader provides, then look at the people following him. That's what he says in chapter three. I said it a couple weeks ago that it. It, it hurts as a pastor when I see people bickering or when I see people uh, falling away, when I see people abandoning the truth. That, that, that grieves me as a pastor. I know it grieves many of you because when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. We, that was one of the metaphors Paul used this morning. But the fact of the matter is, is that when I think about my success in ministry, what do I think about? I don't think about numbers. I think about lives, right? I do, I do want us to touch a lot of people. But I want us to touch a lot of people with an authentic gospel, with a vision for the family, with an understanding of mission and purpose in the Christian life and giftedness and how God weaves together and redeems our backgrounds to bring us all and bring us all into one fellowship so that we can work together towards a common goal and purpose. Like that's when I think about when I think about my success in ministry, I think about are we doing that? Are we creating those types of people? Are our young people being raised to understand what it looks like to serve a community with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what we're concerned about. And that's not easy. And that's not of the world. The world looks at that and that's just foolish. Now we want, we want good-looking kids who are great athletes who are going to get college scholarships. And we want them to go to the right schools. And we want them to do this and this and this and this and this. And I'm telling you that while some of that has value, if they don't know Jesus... And then they don't know how to walk with the Lord. What is it? What what does it gain a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? None of those things matter if they don't know Jesus when they walk out of these doors. And so, what's the most important thing as our kids are being formed, as we're being formed, is our our intimacy with Jesus. That's what determines success. And when you really think about it, Paul goes on to say it's an amazing thing. In the later part of chapter 3, he says that we have this glory that's better than the glory that Moses saw. Because when Moses saw God face to face and the glory of God shone from him, it faded over time. But with us, as we look at Jesus in the word and we spend time with him in prayer, even though he's put He's he I mean, even though before we knew him, we were blinded. Now he has opened our eyes. He goes on to say in chapter four, so that this glory is put inside of us and it never fades. And look at the end of verse of, of chapter three, verse 18. He says, and we with this unveiled face, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are growing and we are maturing and we are being sanctified and we're looking more and more and more and more and more like Jesus as we behold him. As we as we stand face to face with him in his word and as we kneel in his presence, as we shout and sing and worship. And this glory is the light of the gospel shining from us. C.S. Lewis calls this the good infection. If you've ever read Mere Christianity, he calls this the good infection. And have you ever thought about this? That if, you, if you've been infected with Jesus in an authentic way, it's just like a contagious virus. You know, when I was a kid, we, had, we, we, we would get chicken pox, right? And you, you would have people, they'd have the chicken pox party, right? And they'd just go ahead and bring their kids over and expose them to it. You didn't even really have to get them that close. It seemed just naturally that it would just spread, right? 
And, and maybe that's not, that's not best medical practice today, but it, that's kind of the way it worked when we were kids. And so, I, I mean, I remember my sister getting it and my parents being like, well, you just need to go hang out with her for a few minutes and you'll get it too. Let's just go ahead and get that over with, right? And, and so, you don't really have to think about it. You don't really have to do anything special. When it's contagious, what, it just happens, right? And C.S. Lewis says that when you've really been comforted by God, when you've really been touched and marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that's what it is. It just naturally comes out of you. People just catch it from you. They see the difference and they, they may not ever say it to you, but they have this longing inside of them. I want what they've got. That's what the beauty of the gospel is for us, that he has put the spirit inside of us. And, and even though it is truly like having treasure in a jar of clay, we are fickle, feeble human beings prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. And yet at the same time, Jesus has taken up residence inside of us through his spirit. And because of that, our entire lives are devoted to his glory. Look at Second Corinthians chapter five. While we are in these bodies, even though they are jars of clay, where we have, we, have, we have clay feet as human beings, we still have the gospel inside of us, and we will give an account for what we do with our bodies. Look at, look at verse 8 of chapter 5. He says, listen, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I know you've experienced that in your life. You said, Jesus, if you want to come back now, That'd be great. I'd much rather be with you than to be here. That's what Paul's saying. We'd much rather be with the Lord than here. But if we're here, it's for your sake. And if we're here, it's because God has a purpose for us. And so whether we're home here in our bodies or we would be away, we make it our aim to please him. That's the goal of life. We're going to do all for the glory of God. And he's going to hold us into account for this. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This is what life is all about. We have been made new creations, and so we're supposed to overflow that newness into the lives of others. We have been given the righteousness of Christ, and therefore we're supposed to walk in that righteousness. And verse 20 says we're going to be ambassadors of that righteousness, and we are continually calling out to people to be reconciled to God. This is what life is all about, because we recognize that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we work with him, chapter 6 says. And he compels them, or he persuades them in chapter 6 to surrender to this truth that he is continually putting before them. Look at verse 12 in chapter 6. He says, he says, you're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. He's saying, listen, you're going to take the truth of what I say to you and you're going to do with it what you want. You're going to go as far as you want. And it's really not about how eloquently I put it because you've, you have the Spirit inside of you telling you what to do. You have the Spirit of God inside of you showing you where to go. And if you don't want to follow Him, then that's on you. You're going to give an account for it. I'm going to give you the truth and what you do with it is on you. Now, I would love for you to be unrestrained and just to go all out, to be all in, to surrender to what I'm telling you and to, to live for the glory of God in a, in a, in a, in a full way. But you're not restricted by me. You're only restricted by yourself. And so I'm telling you to go all out. 
to go all out in your friendships and in your, in your marriage. He's, he talks about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's saying if, you're, if you've got somebody that you're, that you're being influenced by that's an unbeliever, then you need to recognize that they're naturally going to pull you away from being passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you've got an accountability partner, if you've got a godly spouse, then as you press into the gospel together, then what's going to happen? You're going to naturally be fueled to go farther and farther and farther in your passion and your affection for Jesus Christ. And so that's why we don't need to be unequally yoked. In chapter 7, uh, verse 1 actually belongs in, in verse 6. This is where we see the chapter divisions are not inspired by God. Because chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and of the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That goes with that previous section there about walking in holiness. And then Paul, in, in chapters 8 and 9, gives probably one of the best explanations about stewardship and giving in any of his writing. And see, what happened, if you'll remember the context, is that uh, basically... When persecution hit the Jerusalem church, people were devastated. And Paul had gone out to all of these different churches and he had preached the gospel and he had established a church there. And when they heard about this persecution that had hit Jerusalem, as a, as a show of unity, all the churches sent an offering back to the Jerusalem church to help them out. But because Paul and the Corinthian church were in conflict with each other, they had not sent an offering, and really they hadn't even saved up for an offering. And so in chapters 8 and 9, Paul wants to encourage them to give generously because the time is now to give. Look at verse 9 of chapter 8. He, he puts the gospel in financial terms, if you will. He says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's the good infection all over again. If you recognize the riches that you have in Christ, then you will be generous givers. You will naturally overflow in generosity. And he says, don't wait for the right time to give, because the right time will never come. If you, if you want to wait for the right time to start tithing, you want to wait for the right time to start giving generously to offerings, he's saying that time will never become because... The love of money is the root of all evil. These, it, it, this is one of the greatest temptations in our life is to, is to keep and to hoard and to, to hold, uh, hold, hold one more dollar for myself. And he says, giving generously is the check on that natural inclination that we have. And then he wants to instruct them in the way to give. It reminded me of a time that a, a, I heard a story about a mom who... Probably did like a lot of you do. And they came to church with their daughter uh, one day and they gave their daughter a dollar and a quarter to put in the offering plate. And just as a little test, the mom said, you can place either one in the offering plate. It's entirely up to you. And so as they were driving home, the mother asked the daughter, they said, she said, well, what did you decide to give? And she, the little girl says, well, at first I was going to give the dollar. But the man behind the pulpit said that God loves a cheerful giver. So I felt like I'd be much more cheerful if I gave the quarter instead. <laughs> that's not what that's talking about, right? Look at chapter 9, verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says this. He says, the point of the, is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He's saying give generously. 
Look at verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful is the Greek word from, from which we get the English word hilarious. Right? You give joyously. I mean, you, you are happy about writing that check, or you're happy about putting that offering envelope in the plate. And some of us are like, that, I don't think that's possible. But I promise you it is. When you, when you begin, once again, apply the gospel, right? Apply the gospel. In creation, God has given us resources to steward them, but really he owns it all. And the fall tells us that our propensity is to hold back that money and to rebel against his definition of life. His definition of life is giving and investment, right? And good stewardship in that way. That's where you start. But our natural inclination says, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. And so when Jesus transforms us, then he puts the desire to give as Jesus gave to us inside of us. And as we meditate upon those promises, then he, he restores us to that original intention and makes us cheerful to be good stewards of God's gifts to us. So we give cheerfully, we give generously, but then verse 8 says we give expectantly. Verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Just count the alls in here. I love this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in all good works or every good work. I think it's pretty clear. Paul's saying, just trust the Lord and give generously. Just trust the Lord and give joyfully. Trust the Lord and give expectantly. And then he gives this final challenge, which probably make the, make the top five of Paul's greatest words that he wrote to us in chapters 10 through 13, particularly chapter 12. Chapter 10, Paul says, continue with the truth. Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. That was one of the accusations that have been leveled against him. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of those who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. He's saying, listen, I've got problems with the people who are in your midst who are making these accusations against me, but I'm not going to walk in the flesh. I'm not going to, to just uh, respond in the flesh. Look at what he says. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so what he's saying is, he's saying ideas have what? Consequences, right? Bad ideas have victims. And so we don't battle against people. We battle against principalities working through personalities. You see that? Our, our war, he's going to say this again in Ephesians chapter 6, our, our battle is not with flesh and blood. If we disagree, then my battle is not with you in terms that I, in, 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 the, in the sense that I need to wage war against you as a person. As a, as an, our culture desperately needs to hear this, don't they? Our war is with ideas. Our war is, is using words and what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's evil. And so it's with words that we convey this and Christians need to be ready to give an account for what they believe. And they need to be ready to use these, these truths of the gospel to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And so Paul says that he recognizes that he doesn't look like a good leader. 
He doesn't. He, he recognizes that there are people who would make accusations against him in the way he looks, but nobody is going to outwork him. Nobody is going to work harder for the glory of God than him. And so he says in verse 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he starts in verse 11 with these quote unquote super apostles, which he calls them that in verse five of chapter 11. And he says, even though they say I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. And even though they say that he humbled himself so that so that the Corinthians could be exalted, that he didn't charge them for his services of preaching the gospel, that that was that was that was that was God's design. And he says he's going to in verse 12, he's going to continue doing what he does because he knows that that's the way that God what, what God has called him to do. And so he begins in, in the, at verse 16 of chapter 11 to talk about this idea of suffering and the accusation they level against him. That they're looking at him and saying, Paul's suffering is evidence that he's not walking with God. And Paul says to the contrary, my suffering is actually a testimony that I am walking with God. And so he tells them, and look at chapter 11, verse 30. He says, if I, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my what? Chapter 11, verse 30, what does it say? I will boast in the things that show my, my weaknesses. Yeah, or my infirmities, right? And he's gone through. He's talked about all the things he's faced for the gospel. Remember what the false teachers are saying. Paul's suffering is evidence that he's not walking with God. And Paul says, no, I'm, I'm telling you that my suffering is evidence that I am walking with God. And so you say, why would he boast this way? Doesn't he know this is not how you influence friends? I mean, win friends and influence people? He reveals this experience, which he conveys ambiguously as a way not to boast. Look at what he says. He says in, in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 12, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will, go, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ. He's talking autobiographically. He's talking about himself at this point. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up in paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of his revelations, he's kind of saying, he's pointing to the fact, this is me that I'm talking about. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me in these famous words, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And underline this, for when I am weak, I am strong. Just like Jacob's limp was a testimony that he had wrestled with the Lord. 
So Paul was given this thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming proud or conceited. And see what what he says in verse 9. This thorn was God's design. It was a continual pathway into the presence of God as Paul felt this weakness continually nipping at him. Some people say that it was uh, the fact that he was blind. Just residually as something left over from the Damascus Road experience. Like Jacob's limp. He'd wrestled, Jacob wrestled with God and he went away limping. Paul had seen, he'd been blinded by the glory of Christ appearing to him in his post-resurrection form. And that just as a, as a, as a byproduct of that, that he had developed an, an eye illness later on in the future. And some people have even tried to diagnose what this was and how what Paul says in other letters about how big he had to write so that he could see it. They've, they've tried to diagnose it uh, from a medical standpoint. But, but that's what a lot of people think is that there was he had a blindness, some kind of eye issue, maybe something left over from his persecutions. But what he says about this weakness is so freeing for us. He says that. He's going to boast in those weaknesses and in those sufferings because they are not an obstacle from him entering the presence of God, but they provide an opportunity for him to continually cling to God. Weakness, he says in verse 10, weakness laid at the feet of Jesus becomes strength. One of the men that I came to respect even more this past year was Chuck Colson. We talked about the cross transforming everything, and some of you may know Chuck Colson as the first man indicted for the Watergate scandal in the Nixon administration, and he spent several months in a prison in Alabama, I didn't know that part, uh, in 1974 for, those, uh, for that, that crime that he committed in the Watergate scandal. And he had become a Christian the year before, and when he left prison after those seven months, he had this profound sense of the need for Christ there. And so he started a ministry called Prison Fellowship Ministries. And listen to what he says. He says, the greatest paradox of my life is that every time I walk into a prison and see the faces of men or women who have been transformed by the power of the living God, I realize that the thing God has chosen to use in my life is none of my successes. None of my achievements, none of my degrees, none of my awards, none of my honors or cases I won before the Supreme Court. Not many people can say that, right? That's not what God is using in my life. What God is using in my life to touch the lives of literally thousands of other people is the fact that I was a convict and went to prison. That was my great defeat. The only thing in my life that I didn't succeed in. And yet that's what God chose to use. What an incredible understanding of what the world calls defeat and the world calls weakness. And Paul wants this to leave a mark on them. So he, he challenges them to continue in verse 5 of chapter 13 to examine themselves, to see whether they're in the faith. Do you have this view of Christ? Do you have this view of weakness? Or do you not realize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Are you, are you living with this lens of the gospel in your life? And he says in chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 11, what they should continue pursuing. Kind of like he said in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. In an uh, episode of the TV comedy The Office, the manager Michael Scott was called into corporate headquarters to interview for another job. 
And his boss asks him, he says, what do you think your greatest strengths are as a manager? Michael Scott responds, well, why don't I tell you what my greatest weaknesses are? I work too hard, I care too much, and sometimes I can be too invested in my job. And his boss responds, okay, and your strengths? To which Michael Scott responds, well, my weaknesses are actually my strengths. <laughs> See, that, if, we, if we want to be honest with ourselves, like that's our view of weaknesses. Like we want to find some way to spin our weaknesses to where they actually make us look good, right? But that's absolutely not what it, what, what's going on here. Paul's not hiding his weaknesses to make them look like strengths. Paul's embracing his weaknesses and saying these are the pathway through which I find true strength. We don't like talking about our weaknesses. We, we, we don't like the, the fact that the thing that qualifies us for the best kinds of ministry are areas where we are weak, not areas where we are necessarily strong. In 1 Corinthians one twenty seven, remember it, Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Do we really think that we're going to reinvent Christian ministry in 2018? No. It's been this way, and it's going to continue to be this way. God uses people like Linus Elward and George Mueller and Bertha Smith. And if you don't know any of those names, you need to go, need to go pick up some biographies and read about how God has done this century after century after century after century. Let me, let me read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, it will do us good to be very empty, to be very weak, to be very distrustful of self, and so to go about our master's work. Spurgeon reached thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people for Christ with this perspective. We're not going to reinvent the wheel. N.T. Wright, who's a more contemporary theologian, he says, we live in a world full of people struggling to be, or at least people who appear to be, strong. In order, not to be, in order not to be weak. But we follow a gospel which says that when I am weak, then I am strong. And the, this gospel is the only thing that brings healing. So do you want to be agents of restora restoration? Do you want to be agents of comfort? Do you, be, do you want to be ambassadors for Christ? Then don't try to hide the places where you're weak. Don't try to hide your infirmities. Don't try to run away from your sufferings. Don't try to, uh, to, to put it in kind of that private area of your life. That, that's not to say, uh, don't come out and boast about it. You look at all that Paul wrote, and just in this one part, it's really one of the only times he talks about his sufferings. But at the same time, recognize those are not obstacles to you encountering the presence of God. That in the presence of God, when you acknowledge your weaknesses, when you acknowledge your propensities to rebel, then that's actually when you find God saying, oh, I'm glad you finally decided to be honest. Come on in and hear what I have to say about that. Come on in and find strength you where you are in your time of need and then be unleashed to be a true minister of the gospel because I'm not just a minister of the gospel you are ministers of the gospel and one of the reasons that people don't look at us as ministers of the gospel is because we bought into this American idea that we need to project strength we need to project you know solid this this solid uh, I, I never kind of struggle appearance that's not true nobody believes that it's a it's a it's a shallow mask that is actually preventing us from true ministry do you see that and and what I'm seeing is is that the younger generation those people in their 20s who they say are not they're not interested in coming to church you know when they really are interested in coming to church when they hear older people humbly Teaching about the way that God has helped them endure through suffering and through hardships and through trials. 
when they hear that humility and that, that true gospel faith ooze out of them, then there's no such thing as, as, as ageism in the church where one age is superior and another age is just, they just need to go retire. That doesn't exist. And we're going to see that in the book of Titus chapter 2 as the model for relational intergenerational ministry in the church. And so I guess all that I'm saying in the way that we'll close tonight is just to ask, are you embracing the point of why God has put things in your life to make you weak? Are you embracing the struggles and the sicknesses and the, 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 the experiences that the world would say are, are negative experiences that you need to run away from? Are you trying to explain them away or justify them or, or use them as something to even call God, God's power and love into question? Or are you viewing them as opportunities to enter into the presence of God? They're not pleasant. I'm sure when Paul was in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers, and many sleepless nights, and hungering and thirsting, and I'm sure those weren't comfortable. But it's when we set our eyes upon the promises of God that we hear those words that I hope you've heard yourself. My grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weaknesses. Don't run away from them. And so what I want us to do here just for the last few moments of our time together, I, I, want, you to, I want you to immediately put this into practice. And I want you to take a moment, and maybe you do it on your notes that you have in front of you, or maybe you just do it and take a little mental list. But can you thank God right now for the weaknesses? Can you thank God right now? For the sufferings. Can you thank God right now for the unpleasant experiences that he's allowed you to have? That maybe you wish had never happened if you're honest with yourself. Can you be honest with those and, and thank God for those? I want you to take a few moments just in the quietness of this moment and to write those down or to express to God. Thank you, God, for sending this into my life. And I'll close here in a moment.